I thought um, it's probably been, this is our sixth week, and so we probably should do a little recap because um, we've been rallying pretty steady. And as we are looking at the story of God, one of the things that we're, we're reminding ourselves of, we want to be reminded of, is that this is God's story. Obviously, that's the title. But our hope is that as we read these stories that many of us have grown up reading and understanding, that if anything, our perspective uh, just starts looking more and more as we're trying to find God in the story. He's, it's not like he's hiding, right? But God's activity, God's work, um, and I've talked about this before because so often, at least how I grew up, is I would so often be looking for myself in the story. I'd read something and I'd see in my desire to have application where there's nothing wrong with that, I'd look so much for myself in the story that, that um, I'd often miss God. And so as a recap... As we're looking at the story of God, as we start at the very beginning, we, we, remem- we remember and we're reminded that God made the world, right? He made everything perfect and good. He said it was good. In fact, when He made human beings, He said that we were very good, right? And with this desire uh, to, to make human beings, we see that one of the first descriptors of humans was that we were image bearers of God, that we were tasked with imaging God to the rest of the world, the rest of creation, and with that came responsibility to care and cultivate His creation to kind of rule over in a very stewardship kind of way. But there was also this aspect of reflecting the goodness and glory of God to each other and to the rest of creation. And in that, as we see human beings, the third kind of aspect of that is that we were relational. That we were made for relationships. And one of the first relationships that humans experienced was with God. This holy and perfect God entered into relationship with human beings. And because we were perfect and faultless at this moment, there was, it was this unfettered access. We, we had full access to God. There was nothing about this that was unacceptable. It was this beautiful picture of fully loved and fully accepted, fully uh, acceptable people. But what we see quickly into our story is that God said everything is good, right? There's good. This is good. This is very good. But this tree is bad. That's a bad tree. It's a tree of good and evil. Don't partake of the tree. And we see very early on that humans said, you know what? I know that you said this is bad and I know you said, but we actually think it's good. And so we're going to partake of that. And I know there was deception involved and that she was tricked. But at the end of the day, they determined that the tree is actually good. We think it's actually better than you think, and we're going to partake of it so we can be made like you, knowing good and evil. And so with this idea of defining their own good and evil and rebelling against God's definition of good and evil, the world is broken. It's thrown into chaos. We quickly see distortion, and we see oppression, and we see pain, and we see suffering, and we see murder, and we see sin, and we see violence, and the world quickly I mean, Genesis chapter like 4 or 5, we start seeing it happen very quickly. And we, but we find, not too far down, to, down Genesis, we see that God is not done with human beings, and so he continues to pursue humans. And although he destroys the world and starts over with Noah, we see him officially start over with this original purpose of having human beings image him with 
a man that later was called Abraham. And he promises this couple, this man in his 70s, that it's through him and his offspring that he's going to bless the whole world. But the fun part was is he had no kids. And we see the first moment of grace essentially enter into our story when it says that Abraham believed what God said and it was accounted to him as for righteousness. We see the first aspect of God declaring somebody in right standing with him enter into our story with, Gen- with, with Abraham as he trusted what God said. And 30 years later, God fulfills his promise, which I think is just hilarious. God's like, I'm just going to wait 30 years. And Abraham and Sarah have a son who has kids, who has 12, uh, Jacob then has 12 sons, and they become a huge people group in Egypt as they're living there during a famine, and they become this nation. And, and one of the things he promised Abraham is that through your descendants, the whole world would be blessed, that your family will be a blessing to the rest of the families of the world. And so as they're in Egypt, they're under a tons of oppression for 400 years, they're experiencing much suffering, God determines at this time to raise up a deliverer to free them from being enslaved. And that guy's name is Moses. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. He tried to kind of get the party started about 40 years prior, kills a guy, moves out into the wilderness, gives up, becomes a shepherd. Anyway, God says, when he's 80 years old, now's the time. And so Moses goes and... um, read the book of Exodus, you get the full details because I'm going to skip through a ton of it, but there's tons of miraculous stuff. There's tons of plagues, everything else. There's water parting. They come out free. Tons of miraculous stuff. We talked a lot about this one last week. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. There's water coming out of a rock. There's bread coming from the sky. It's a wild and crazy time. And God brings them out and he brings them to the very mountain that he first revealed himself to Moses in this burning bush. And in this mountain, God enters into a covenant with this people group known as Israel. And a covenant is, is it's like a contract, but it's, it's really a one-way contract, right? Where both parties are determined to do what they're doing regardless of what the other party does. And so God enters into a contract. And what's beautiful is we kind of see everything kind of come full circle. God promises them. He says, if I will bless those that bless you, I'll curse those who curse you. I'm going to have you be my image bearers again. I want you to image me and communicate something about me to the rest of the nations around you. I want you to rule and reign in such a way that communicates my justice and my goodness. And he gives them this law. And he says, this is how you do it. This is what it looks like to image me to the rest of the world. This is what it looks like to live in health as human beings. This is what it's going to look like. And he gave rules for leaders and he gave rules for relationship. This is what healthy relationships look like. This is what healthy living looks like. This is what it looks like to be an image bearer of me. And he even restored this idea of being with humans again. He goes, and I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to give you directions to make this tent and my presence is going to physically be on the earth, in this space, in this time, so that we can have this interaction again. And so with that came animal sacrifice to make people able to come in God's presence. And so we have it kind of coming full circle, which if you ever study like especially Eastern um, story and everything else, it is circular, it is not linear, right? So we have it coming back, but it's different this time, right? Where before it was unfettered access, they had full access to God, fully acceptable God. Now 
there's limitations. They can be a little bit acceptable only during the sacrifice, only at this very moment. They can have limited amount of access, but it's only one man once a year after much sacrifice. So it, was, it, was, it wasn't the same, but it was back. And so as God's giving them this, there's this new dwelling place he's going to be, this new image bearer where he's going to, these people are going to be, while he's giving them this new way to live, the very moment this is taking place, they are building a golden calf, choosing a new leader to lead them back to Egypt, breaking the covenant. The very moment that God is making this covenant. And that's where we left off last week. And if you remember, if you were here, is that the reader of this story should bring themselves, it should bring them to this place of like, what are we going to do? Right? Like, like you should, we should be brought at a loss. And that is by design. Because if our hope is in the institution of man, if it is in human beings, we will always be left wanting. Because no one can be good enough. Moses wasn't a good enough leader. The priests weren't good enough. Nobody was good enough. They couldn't do it. And if you remember, we talked about Jesus, how he, in so many ways it was pointing us to him. He was the bread from heaven. He was the water from the rock quenching the thirst. And he was a better Moses, and we looked at that. And so as our story picks up, the big idea of today is that God is faithful. He is faithful when we're not faithful. He is faithful. And that's something that we cannot, uh, we cannot, I don't think, be reminded of enough. And so as Moses uh, draws to the end of their journey, so the Israelites leave the mountain, God goes, all right, like, you broke it, makes new tablets, let's keep this going. He leads them to the promised land. They decide they don't want to go in. God said this is a good land. They say, we don't think it's a good land, actually. Uh, there's giants there, and it's scary, and there's these big walls, and so we're not going to do that. God goes, fine. Now you can spend 40 years in the wilderness, right? That was not God, part of God's plan. And so they wander for 40 years. And at the very end, as they're about to enter in, God says to Moses, who also can't enter in, um, I'm going to raise up somebody like you one day, and them, him, the people will listen to. And so Moses tells the people, listen, one day there's going to be a prophet like me, a leader like me, and him you're going to listen to. And he says that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. And what he meant by that is that one day there would be somebody, as Moses talked with God, it says face to face. Like this, this like, it was an actual conversation, right? We have people go, like, God talked to me. Sometimes we experience God talking to us. But very, I've never had a situation where I'm talking and then God's like literally, like we're having a conversation, dialogue, like verbally, out, out, it's, right? It's a, it's a unique thing, right? And so Moses would take God's word and then he would communicate God's word to the people and then he would, people would complain and he would take their complaint to God and he was his mediator and he would be speaking, though, God's word to the people. And so he said, there's going to be somebody like me and he's going to do that, but this time you're going to hear him. And then he dies. Pretty much. Right around that time. Then Joshua comes up. Joshua is one that brings him in. He's this new leader that brings him in and they start conquering the land and they start taking hold of the promise that God gave them. And he starts laying out things and the idea was with Joshua is that they were ruled by God, but that he was leading them in this idea that God is still the king. And they set up these cities where priests would be throughout the kingdoms, uh, throughout their kingdom. And this is how they would know how to image and communicate 
and enjoy this relationship with God. That's how they were taught to image God was as these priestly cities throughout the kingdom. But then Joshua dies. And then all the leaders with Joshua died and the people lose it again and they start running after idols. And so God starts a way of ruling called judges. And the idea of the judge is they, weren't, they were different than a king. A king would rule with absolute sovereignty. A judge ruled under God's kingship. They were just determining what it looks like. They were judging between what's right and wrong, what it looks like to judge, what it looks like to image God, essentially, right? And so they're trying to live by the law. Often the judges would, would be raised up at a time when they were being conquered. When they were conquered, they were enslaved. And it was really kind of a cool time. Um, you know, there was random people becoming judges. You're like, that guy's a judge? And you're like, yeah, I mean, I guess, right? But the overarching thing in the book of Judges is um, it's mentioned multiple times is the verse Judges 17, 6 is a great one of them. It said, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's Joshua 17, 6. Here we see that theme of defining good and evil on our own terms again, right? It is a reoccurring theme even today. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The sad thing about this thing is Israel did have a king, it was God, but we see that their heart was drifting to the point where they never re didn't recognize God as their king. And so these judges would have to come up and remind them that it was after they were conquered and enslaved to other nations that they would come back around and these judges raise up. So stories of like Gideon and Samson and Deborah, these were judges. So this continued, this cycle, where they would, a judge would come up and free them and then they would be like, this is awesome. And then either the judge would fail or they would, and they'd start worshiping the idols again of other nations that conquered them. And then they'd get conquered. And then God would raise up a judge and then they'd get conquered. And each time, if you read the book of Judges, by the end of the book of Judges, you're like, what the heck is going on here? I mean, they're chopping up bodies and there's like crazy, like it is the weirdest book. But we have to look at through the lens of, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's, you read the book of Judges, that's how you, get, if that's how we function, that's where we get. So all the judges die, and the people said, we want a king like the other nations. Everybody else has a king to take them out in the battle, and to rule, and to conquer their enemies. We want a king like the other nations. And at the time, Samuel was this kind of judge, priest, prophet character, and he's like, you guys are rejecting God. And said, God said, you know what? Give it to them. So God, in his infinite wisdom, gives them the ideal. He gives them everything they think they want in a king. They give him a guy named Saul. He is taller than anyone up by over a head. He is huge, and he is a warrior, and he is going to free them. He's going to lead them out to battle. He's good-looking. He is their king. But with God, there's always a little bit of irony. You know what Saul did before he was king? He was a donkey herder. I love it. Love it. Who better to lead a stubborn and rebellious people than a guy that's used to caring for stubborn and rebellious animals? Donkey herder, which is such a contrast to David, who's the shepherd, right? Gives him the donkey herder as king. Saul does great for about a minute and a half. And then he fails miserably. To the point where Saul ends his career by consulting a witch to talk to a dead person to figure out whether they're going to have a victory. But before he got that bad in, God had already decided to choose another king. David. A man, as God defines him, after his own heart. 
And what that doesn't mean is that David was more perfect or better or just more holy than everyone else. But I think that it's literal, the word, that he was a man that was after God's heart. He was chasing after God's heart. He, he loved God and he wanted to have God's heart. You read throughout the Psalms, which mostly is David, this struggle of like wanting to literally destroy all his enemies, but yet I want God. Like, I love, if you're ever in a space of like just struggling, I recommend the Psalms because David is all over with where he's at emotionally, but he is so good at connecting the heart, the emotions of humans with the heart of God. And so he calls David, this shepherd, the youngest brother of a family, to be a king. And you'd think that, uh, that everybody would be cool with it, but nobody really knew. What really set David apart was this, the most famous story of David was David and Goliath. That's when really his career began as king. And many of you have heard the story before, but for the lack of a better term, the big idea was that the Philistines and the Israelites were lined up on two different sides. And the Philistines said, hey, rather than all of us fight a battle, why don't we just send out our best warrior? And whoever wins, wins. And then nobody has to die. And then we rule you and take all your stuff, or you vice versa. And so they sent out Goliath, 10 feet tall, a beast of a man, Who's the biggest, baddest warrior the Israelites have? Saul. Where's Saul at? Hiding in his tent. With everyone else. Everybody was hiding in their tent because who in the world can go against Goliath? A literal giant. But here comes David. This young shepherd boy. Said he was ruddy and good looking, right? Comes on the scene. He's mad that this giant's talking trash about God. He believes God's promises. And he says, I'll do it. I'll go out. Right, This idea that one would sacrifice themselves for the whole. Even if he lost, he's going to at least have somebody. But we know the story, many of us, right? He wins. He throws some rocks, nails him right in the head. Boom, goes down, chops off his head with his own sword, like super victory. The people come out of their tent and say, let's take all their stuff. They get credit for the victory. David becomes king eventually. But David, too, you know, had issues. But one of my favorite stories of David is after he becomes king, he says, God, I have this beautiful house and you have this little mangy tent that we've been carrying around forever. I want to build you a house. And so God responds to David through the prophet Nathan and says, you know what? Um, you're not going to build me a house. Your son will, but you're not. But I actually want to build you a house. God's response is, I want to build you a house, David. I'm going to build you a legacy. And he said, your descendant, your son will always be on the throne. You'll always have a king on the throne. And so David responds. It's a beautiful, I mean, it's one of my favorite parts about uh, the stories of David. But it was shortly after that, David too fails. Right? He impregnates one of his soldier's wives, then kills him to cover it up. You find out later that David's a terrible dad. His house is in disorder. There's rape. There's murder. His son tries to usurp the throne kills the other brothers, like it's, it's a mess. And then David dies. And then his son takes the throne, Solomon. Now this guy was given wisdom by God. Says, the Bible says nobody's been more wise and nobody's been more rich, right? Bezos has nothing on Solomon. Maybe he's the promised son. He has the wisdom from God. He has nothing more that he needs. 
But we find quickly that Solomon too failed. He had a problem with the ladies. A thousand wives worshipped all their gods. He ends badly too. And so did his son and his son's son. And eventually, every king died and failed at some point. Some were better than others. I'm not saying everybody was bad. But everyone ended up dying to the point when the nation was finally taken captive. All of their brightest were taken to Babylon. Their walls were torn down. The kingdom was set on fire. The temple was burnt to the ground. They were destroyed. And so as you're reading through this, especially as the people are experiencing this, they had to have seen as they're watching the smoke fill the sky, going, has God's promises failed? Where is the prophet like Moses that was going to speak to us? Where's the conqueror like Joshua that was going to help us take hold of this promised land? Where's the king? Where's this promised son that was supposed to sit on the throne forever? Where is God in all of this? How could this be? But like I said at the start, is this is God's story, right? This is how our story ends every time. Maybe not to this extreme, but this is our story. If, if what I just told is the story of humans, and every good and perfect thing we're experiencing is part of God's story for us, right? Because as many of us know, there was a prophet like Moses that came. Jesus, but he was better than Moses because rather than hearing from God and speaking God's word, Jesus was the word of God. The actual logos of God. And where Moses would mediate to his best of ability from the people to God, Jesus mediates perfectly. In fact, the Bible tells us that he's still mediating today. That he lives to make intercession for us. That he perfectly represents God to us and he perfectly represents us to God because he became like us. And he died and he rose again. But he's also a better Joshua in that Joshua led the people in, but he never allowed them to fully take hold of what God had promised. He was limited. He tried it his best. And they still had so much left to conquer. They didn't even conquer all the nations they were supposed to. They let some live who kept on kind of coming back. But Jesus, whose name literally is Joshua, Yahshua, has led us in and is leading us in to take hold of the promise that God has given us, this better life that God has promised, the abundant life that Jesus promised. But like David, I think, I love how Jesus is in so many, the better king than David. He is the promised son that God promised David, that he'd always have somebody on the throne. And like the story of, of David and Goliath, which I absolutely love, Jesus is, is so much like David in that story because he too came and took on the giant. For us, it's sin and death. And we too are like the Israelites hiding in the tents, unable to face the giant. Our biggest warriors isn't enough. And where he, David went and killed the giant and conquered him, Jesus conquered the giant by dying. He gave his life for the whole nation so that we could experience the victory as if we conquered the giant on our own. And it's only when we accept what Jesus has done that we're able to experience essentially that victory that he has given us. 
And He still reigns today. He is the King that's still on the throne. And we're living in that kingdom where God is ruling and reigning. And the beauty of what Jesus has done is that He is allowing us through the power of His Holy Spirit, even if it is in sometimes feeble ways, to image Him again. Not just to the rest of the world, but to each other. I think one of the most important things as being a follower of Jesus is we need to communicate something about Jesus to each other so often. And how we interact with people and our relationships. How we deal with 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 when we like we're gonna hurt each other. We're gonna sin against each other. It's like it's a guarantee. Okay? I will offend you, I'm sure, and I will sin against you. But we at those moments I need to be reminded of the goodness and glory of God, as you need to be reminded of the goodness and glory of God. And I have blind spots, and so I may not see it. And so I need you to image Jesus to me and be literally the hands and feet of Jesus. That is the life of a believer. That is what it looks like to be part of the body of Christ. That's what community is. And here's the beauty of it. If I am coming from a place of being full, if I know that because my identity is in Jesus, because I'm fully loved and fully accepted by the Father, I don't need your approval. I don't need you to be anything for me. I can come from a place of fullness and care and love you even if you don't have anything to offer me. And at times, it might be reversed where you are in a great spot and I'm not, and so you're able to care and love. And sometimes we come together with this place of fullness and we're giving each other. It's not a place of, I need you this and I need this. We're coming from a place of fullness because who we are is fixed in what Jesus has done. And that's not always the case, but those moments of fullness are sweet. So it allows us to come and care for each other. And the beauty of that is that we're able to be known. We don't have to have it dialed all the time. We don't have to have everything in order. We don't have to pretend like everything is perfect all the time. We can be flawed. We can be broken. We can let that be seen because we know that this other person doesn't need me to be dialed for it to be okay. I can be vulnerable because they're coming from a space of vulnerability too because we both need Jesus. And so with that, let's reflect as we continue singing, um, just kind of what does it look like, right? What does it look like to be in this space of, of imaging God, even when out of places of pain or struggle? What does it look like? Yeah, whatever the Lord speaks to you, let's just spend some time singing and responding in worship.